there are three steps in connection with God's love. The first, His inward purpose to exercise it. The last, the real execution of that purpose. But in between, there is the gracious making known of that purpose to the beneficiaries of it. While love is concealed, we cannot be comforted therewith. Now God, who is love, not only loves his own and will not only show his love fully to them in due time, but in the interim he will have us informed of his benevolent designs that we may sweetly rest in his love and stretch ourselves comfortably upon his sure promises. Thereby we are able to say, How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God! How great is the sum of them! Psalm 139, 17 In Second Peter 1, 4, the divine promises are spoken of as exceeding great and precious. As Spurgeon pointed out, greatness and preciousness seldom go together, but in this instance they are united in an exceeding degree. Unquote. When Jehovah is pleased to open his mouth and reveal his heart, he does so in a manner worthy of himself, in words of superlative power and richness. To quote again the beloved London pastor, They come from a great God. They come to great sinners. They work for us great results and deal with great matters. Unquote. While the natural intellect is capable of perceiving much of their greatness, only the renewed heart can taste their ineffable preciousness and say with David, How sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Psalm 119, verse 103. Number 1. We are profited from the word when we perceive to whom the promises belong. They are available only to those who are in Christ. For all the promises of God in him, the Lord Jesus, are yea, and in him are men. 1 Corinthians 1.20 There can be no intercourse between the thrice holy God and sinful creatures except through a mediator who has satisfied him on their behalf. Therefore must that mediator receive from God all good for his people, and they must have it at the second hand through him. A sinner might just as well petition a tree as call upon God for mercy while he despises and rejects Christ. Both the promises and the things promised are made over to the Lord Jesus and conveyed unto the saints from him. This is the chief and grandest promise that he hath promised us, eternal life, 1 John 2, 25. And as the same epistle tells us, this life is in his Son, chapter 5, verse 11. This being so, what good can they who are not yet in Christ have by the promises? None at all. A man out of Christ 
is out of the favor of God. Yea, he is under his wrath. The divine threatenings and not the promises are his portion. Solemn, solemn consideration is this. Those who are without Christ are aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. Having no hope and without God in the world, Ephesians 2.13, only the children of God are the children of the promise, Romans 9.8. Make sure, my hearer, that you are one of them. How terrible then is the blindness and how great is the sin of those preachers who indiscriminately apply the divine promises unto saved and unsaved alike. They are not only taking the children's bread and casting it to the dogs, but they are handling the word of God deceitfully, 2 Corinthians 4.2, and beguiling immortal souls. Nor are they who listen to and heed them little less guilty. For God holds all responsible to search the scriptures for themselves and test whatever they hear or read by that unerring standard. If they are too lazy to do so and prefer to blindly follow their blind guides, then their blood is on their own heads. Truth has to be bought. Proverbs 23.23 And those who are unwilling to pay the price must go without it. Number two, we are profited from the word when we labor to make our own the promises of God. To do this, we must first take the trouble to become really acquainted with them. It is surprising how many promises there are in Scripture which the saints know nothing about, the more so seeing that they are the peculiar treasure of believers the substance of faith's heritage lying in them. True, Christians are already the recipients of wondrous blessings, yet the capital of their wealth, the bulk of their estate, is only prospective. They have already received an earnest, but the better part of what Christ has purchased for them lies yet in the promise of God. How diligent, then, should they be in studying his testamentary will, familiarizing themselves with the good things which the Spirit hath revealed, 1 Corinthians 2.10, and seeking to take an inventory of their spiritual treasures. Not only must I search the Scriptures to find out what has been made over to me by the everlasting covenant, but I need also to meditate upon the promises to turn them over and over in my mind and cry unto the Lord for a spiritual understanding of them. The bee would not extract any honey from the flowers as long as he only gazed upon them, nor will the Christian derive any real comfort and strength from the divine promises until his faith lays hold of and penetrates to the heart of them. God has given no assurance that the dilatory shall be fed, but he has declared the soul of the diligent shall be made fat. Proverbs 13.4 
Therefore did Christ say, Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life. John 6.27 It is only as the promises are stored up in our minds that the Spirit brings them to remembrance at those fainting seasons when we most need them. Number three. We are profited from the Word when we recognize the blessed scope of God's promises. Spurgeon said, A sort of affectation prevents some Christians from seeking religion as if its sphere lay among the commonplaces of daily life. It is to them transcendental and dreamy, rather a creation of pious fiction than a matter of fact. They believe in God after a fashion, for things spiritual and for the life which is to be. But they totally forget that true godliness hath the promise of the life which now is as well as of that which is to come. To them it would seem almost a profanation to pray about the small matters of which daily life is made up. Perhaps they will be startled if I venture to suggest that this should make them question the reality of their faith. If it cannot bring them help in little troubles of life, will it support them in the greater trials of death? Unquote. Godliness is profitable unto all things having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. 1 Timothy 4, 8 Hearer, do you really believe this, that the promises of God cover every aspect and particular of your present life? Or have the dispensationalists deluded you into supposing that the Old Testament belongs only to the fleshly Jews and that our promises respect spiritual and not material blessings? How many a Christian has derived comfort from I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, Hebrews 13.5. Well, that is a quotation from Joshua 1.5. So too, 2 Corinthians 7.1 speaks of having these promises. Yet one of them referred to in chapter 6, verse 18, is taken from the book of Leviticus. Perhaps someone asks, But where am I to draw the line? Which of the Old Testament promises rightfully belong unto me? We answer, According unto your faith be it unto you. Psalm 84.11 declares, The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. If you are really walking uprightly, then you are entitled to appropriate that blessed promise and count upon the Lord giving you whatever good thing is truly required by you. My God shall supply all your need, Philippians 4.19. If then there is a promise anywhere in his word which just fits your present case and situation, then make it your own as suited to your need. 
steadfastly resist every attempt of Satan to rob you of any portion of your Father's word. Number four, we are profited from the word when we make a proper discrimination between the promises of God. Many of the Lord's people are frequently guilty of spiritual theft, by which we mean that they appropriate to themselves something to which they are not entitled, but which belongs to another. Charles Spurgeon said, Certain covenant engagements made with the Lord Jesus Christ as to his elect and redeemed ones are altogether without condition so far as we are concerned. But many other wealthy words of the Lord contain stipulations which must be carefully regarded or we shall not obtain the blessing. One part of my reader's diligent search must be directed toward this most important point. God will keep his promise to thee. Only see thou to it that the way in which he conditions his engagement is carefully observed of thee. Only when we fulfill the requirement of a conditional promise can we expect that promise to be fulfilled to us. Many of the divine promises are addressed to particular characters or more correctly speaking, to particular graces. For example, in Psalm 25, 9, the Lord declares that he will guide in judgment the meek. But if I am out of communion with him, if I am following a course of self-will, if my heart is haughty, then I am not justified in taking unto myself the comfort of this verse. Again in John 15.7, the Lord tells us, If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. But if I am not in experimental communion with him, if his commands are not regulating my conduct, then my prayers will remain unanswered. While God's promises proceed from pure grace, yet it ever needs to be remembered that grace reigns through righteousness, Romans 5.21, and never sets aside human responsibility. If I ignore the laws of health, I must not be surprised that sickness prevents me from enjoying many of God's temporal mercies. In like manner, if I neglect His precepts, I have only myself to blame if I fail to receive the fulfillment of many of his promises. Let none suppose that by his promises God has obligated himself to ignore the requirements of his holiness. He never exercises one of his perfections at the expense of another. And let none imagine that God would be magnifying the sacrificial work of Christ were he to bestow its fruits upon impenitent and careless souls. There is a balance of truth to be preserved here. Alas, that it is now so frequently lost, and that under the pretense of exalting divine grace, men are really turning it into lasciviousness. How often one hears quoted, Call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver thee. 
Psalm 50, 15. But that verse begins with and, and the preceding clause is pay thy vows unto the Most High. Again, how frequently is I will guide thee with mine eye, Psalm 32a, seized by people who pay no attention to the context. But that is God's promise to one who has acknowledged his sin and confessed his transgressions unto the Lord, verse 5, who has made the Lord his hiding place, verse 7. If then I have unconfessed sins on my conscience and have leaned on the arm of flesh or sought help from my fellows instead of waiting only upon God, Psalm 62, 5, then I have no right to count upon the Lord's guiding me with His eye, which necessarily presupposes that I am walking in close communion with Him, for I cannot see the eye of another while at a distance from Him. Number five, we are profited from the word when we are enabled to make God's promises our support and stay. This is one reason why God has given them to us, not only to manifest his love by making known his benevolent intentions, but also to the comfort of our hearts and development of our faith. Had he so pleased, he could have bestowed his blessings without giving us notice of his purpose. The Lord might have given us all the mercies we needed without pledging himself to do so. But in that case, we could not have been believers. Faith without a promise would be a foot without ground to stand upon. Our tender father planned that we should enjoy his gifts twice over first by faith and then by fruition. By this means he wisely weans our hearts away from the things seen and perishing and draws them onward and upward to those things which are spiritual and eternal. If there were no promises, not only would there be no faith, but no hope either. For what is hope but the expectation of the things which God has declared He will give us. Faith looks to the word promising. Hope looks to the performance thereof. Thus it was with Abraham, who against hope believed in hope, and being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about an hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb, he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. Romans 4.18-20 Thus it was with Moses, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Hebrews 11.26 Thus it was with Paul, I believe God, that it shall be even as it was told me. Acts 27.25 Is it so with you, dear hearer? Are the promises of him who cannot lie the resting place of your poor heart?
Number six, we are profited from the word when we patiently await the fulfillment of God's promises. God promised Abraham a son, but waited many years for the performance of it. Simeon had a promise that he should not see death till he had seen the Lord's Christ, Luke 2.26, yet it was not made good to him till he had one foot in the grave. There is often a long and hard winter between the sowing time of prayer and the reaping of the answer. The Lord Jesus himself has not yet received a full answer to the prayer he made in John 17, 19 centuries ago. Many of the best of God's promises to his people will not receive their richest accomplishment until they are in glory. He who has all eternity at his disposal needs not to hurry. God often makes us tarry so that patience may have her perfect work. Yet let us not distrust him, for the vision is yet for an appointed time. But at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come. Habakkuk 2.3 These all died in faith, not having received the fulfillment of the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them and embraced them. Hebrews 11.13 Here is comprehended the whole work of faith, knowledge, trust, loving adherence. The afar off refers to the things promised, those they saw with the mind, discerning the substance behind the shadow, discovering in them the wisdom and goodness of God. They were persuaded. They doubted not, but were assured of their participation in them and knew they would not disappoint them. Embraced them expresses their delight and veneration, the heart cleaving to them with love and cordially welcoming and entertaining them. The divine promises were the comfort and stay of their souls in all their wanderings, temptations, and sufferings. Various ends are accomplished by God in delaying his execution of the promises. Not only is faith put to the proof, so that its genuineness may the more clearly appear. Not only is patience developed and hope given an opportunity for exercise, but submission to the divine will is fostered. Again, quoting C.H. Spurgeon, The weaning process is not accomplished. We are still hankering after the comforts which the Lord intends us forever to outgrow. Abraham made a great feast when his son Isaac was weaned, and peradventure our Heavenly Father will do the same with us. Lie down, proud heart, quit thine idols, forsake thy fond dotings, and the promised peace will come unto thee. Unquote. Number seven, we are profited from the word when we make a right use of the promises. First, in our dealings with God himself, when we approach unto his throne, 
It should be to plead one of his promises. They are to form not only the foundation for our faith to rest upon, but also the substance of our requests. We must ask according to God's will if we are to be heard, and his will is revealed in those good things which he has declared he will bestow upon us. Thus we are to lay hold of his pledged assurances, spread them before him and say, Do as thou hast said, Second Samuel 7.25. Observe how Jacob pleaded the promise in Genesis 32.12, Moses in Exodus 32.13, David in Psalm 119.58, Solomon in 1 Kings 8.25, and do thou, my Christian here, likewise. Second, in the life we live in the world. In Hebrews 11.13, we not only read of the patriarchs discerning, trusting, and embracing the divine promises, but we are also informed of the effects which they produced upon them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims in the earth, which means they made a public avowal, an open profession of their faith. They acknowledged, and by their conduct demonstrated, that their interests were not in the things of this world. They had a satisfying portion in the promises they had appropriated. Their hearts were set upon things above, for where a man's treasure is, there will be his heart also. Having these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, Second Corinthians 7, 1 Corinthians 7.1. That is the effect they should produce in us and will, if faith really lays hold of them, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. 2 Peter 1.4 John Gill said, Now the gospel and the precious promises, being graciously bestowed and powerfully applied, have an influence on purity of heart and behavior, and teach men to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts, and to live soberly, righteously, and godly. Such are the powerful effects of gospel promises under divine influence as to make men inwardly partakers of the divine nature, and outwardly to abstain from and avoid the prevailing corruptions and vices of the times. Unquote. Arthur Pink Study number five, the true gospel. The gospel is a glorious display of mercy to a lost world, originating in the sovereign, free, and unmerited grace of God, and proclaimed to mankind as a finished salvation through the sole merits, righteousness, and death of the Lord Jesus Christ, in which rich plan of redemption there are these striking particularities eminently distinguished. 
as first. The gospel considers all men, universally speaking, as lost, and all equally incapable of putting forth a helping hand toward the attainment of their own salvation. For it is the unalterable sense of Scripture that it was when we were without strength and in due time that Christ died for the ungodly. Observe the expression, not simply when we were maimed or crippled in our faculties by reason of sin, not when some strength remained, however small, which, when cooperating with other aid, might have procured our recovery. But when all possible resources in ourselves were lost, without strength, or as elsewhere more strongly expressed, when we were altogether dead in trespasses and sins, as if some mighty mountain had fallen upon our nature and crushed all our powers. And this view of mankind, in which the gospel considers our nature as universally lost, represents it also as universally undeserving in every instance of divine favor. This forms a second striking feature in the gospel of Christ. The gospel of the Lord Jesus makes no distinction in the objects of its clemency, as if one man became more worthy of grace than another. For the positive language of Scripture on this point is that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And however gratifying it may be to the unmortified pride of nature, when at any time making comparative views of man with man, to fancy one more excellent than his neighbor, the gospel knows of no distinction but what grace hath made among creatures of universal depravity and corruption. Such notions may float on the imagination of the vain and unawakened who are strangers to the plague of their own hearts, but they lose their very existence before God. The debtor of five hundred or the debtor of fifty pence, being both alike insolvent and unable to pay, are both alike equally exposed to the prison and must continue so forever, unless the goodness of the Almighty Creditor should pass an act of grace and frankly forgive them their respective debts. Indeed, the dear Lord of His people, as if to encourage the most timid mind when overpowered with the sense of multiplied transgressions and to prevent all despondency, Mercifully taught in this view of nature's insolvency, in this very parable of the debtors, that as the greatness or littleness of the debt is the same, both as it respects the state of the sinner's mind in violating the divine precept, and as it concerns the divine mind in the exercise of mercy, the difference is wholly on the part of man and not on the part of God. To whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. Our gratitude for pardoning love will be in proportion to the sense we have of its extent. For though it may well be supposed that all ransomed debtors, when their fetters are broken off and the prison doors thrown open, will sing to the praise and glory of His grace by whom their salvation is procured, 
yet his will be the loudest note whose recovery hath been the most gracious, the most undeserved and unexpected. And what sums up and completes this finished view of the gospel is the third prominent character of it. In superadding to both of these gracious properties this striking particularity, that it is altogether unconditional on the part of God and requires no previous qualification or worth on the part of man. Indeed, the highly favored objects of such bounty as is shown in the gospel being all along considered as without strength and dead and trespasses and sins and having the sentence of death in themselves that they should not trust in themselves but in him who raiseth the dead. It would be a contradiction in terms to suppose that characters so described should be capable of anything to help or bring anything to recommend them to the divine favor. For even repentance and faith, those most essential qualifications of the mind for the participation and enjoyment of the blessings of the gospel, and which all real disciples of the Lord Jesus cannot but possess, are never supposed as a condition which the sinner performs to entitle him to mercy, but merely as evidences that he is brought and hath obtained mercy. They cannot be the conditions of obtaining salvation, for like the gospel itself, both faith and repentance are the immediate result of the divine operation and are the gift of God. The same hand which bestows the gospel bestows also faith and repentance, or the sinner would never obtain them. The blessed Redeemer of mankind is called both the author and finisher of faith, and is said to be exalted to give repentance and remission of sins. And when his servant, the apostle, declares that believers are saved by grace through faith, he as positively declares also that this is the gift of God. Unto you, he says, it is given to believe. Philippians 1.29 I could as easily create a world as create either faith or repentance in my own heart. Both are of divine origin. And like the light and the rain and the dew of heaven, which tarrieth not for man, neither waiteth for the sons of men, are from above and come down from the Father of lights, from whom alone cometh every good and every perfect gift. This view of the gospel, and which certainly is the only true view of it, serves to place it in that light which corresponds with our purest and most exalted notions of the beneficence of God and answers to all the necessities of man. For it consists of nothing but invitations, promises, assurances, and the strongest declarations of mercy, followed up by innumerable instances of those who have been made the happy partakers of it from one end of the Bible to the other. It seems to court the observation, to solicit the attention and 
to invite the acceptance of the miserable and the wretched to its warmest embraces, and that no broken-hearted sinner might despair in fancying himself placed beyond the reach of this rich tide of mercy, which flows continually without ebbing, it is not enough to say that it washes on the shore of the undeserving, but it reaches to the ground of the ill-deserving, not barely to those who have done nothing to merit mercy, but even to those who have done everything to merit punishment. It arises, therefore, above high watermark, overflows all bounds, overtops even the tallest mountains of corruption and demonstrates what one of the apostles declared and thousands of sinners have found to be true, that where sin abounded, grace hath much more abounded. Such being undeniably the state of the case in reference to the gospel and which on account of the boundless extent of its mercy is very properly termed the unsearchable riches of Christ. It next follows that to preach the gospel under any limitations, restrictions, or reserve whatever in proposing conditions to the sinner as constituting his title to a participation of its blessings is to invert the very order of the gospel and instead of holding forth salvation to the lost is only to propose strength to the whole. Just as absurd would it be in a physician to send away his patient when laboring under some desperate disease with a recommendation to do his utmost towards his own cure and then come to him to finish it, as it is in the minister of the gospel to propose to the sinner to do his best by way of healing the disease of the soul and then come to the Lord Jesus to perform his recovery. The only previous qualification is to know our misery, and the remedy is prepared. And as the Lord Jesus himself, when upon earth, in opening his commission in the synagogue of Nazareth, declared that he was anointed to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to give deliverance to the captives, to give sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. It must follow by an undeniable inference that the office to which he hath appointed his servants who minister in his name is to preach freely and fully the same gospel of salvation. I consider, therefore, the several churches of Christ on earth as so many marketplaces of public resort established for this express purpose where proclamation is continually supposed to be made to the poor and to the wretched, the weary and heavy laden, to come with their several wants unto him who alone can supply them and give rest unto their souls without money and without price. And it is very certain that the various ordinances of worship which the Lord Jesus hath appointed in his church are for this purpose and this only, that they may become so many channels of communication under the Blessed Spirit's operation between Christ and his people 
by which empty, needy, distressed and burdened sinners may bring their wants and their cares, their sorrows and their sins before the Lord and receive a suitable supply out of His abundant fullness and grace for grace. And were I to drop into a church of Christians professing the eternal truths of the gospel and found not evidences of these things, but discovered that moral essays were supplying the place of evangelical truths, that the person of the Lord Jesus and his precious offices to lost souls were not made the great topic of discourse, I should be led to conclude that I had mistaken my path and had fallen into a synagogue of the Jews and not the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. My brother in the ministry, if peradventure one of the sacred order should condescend to be among my hearers, shall I entreat you not to be offended with the statement of the case, neither hastily turn away from the serious consideration of a subject which involves in its final consequences the everlasting welfare both of ourselves and our people. Do not fancy that this doctrine leads to licentiousness or that any poor self-condemned and heartbroken sinner can possibly adopt the horrible maxim of continuing in sin that grace may abound. And for characters of a different description with whom both the awful threats of the law and the sweet allurements of the gospel have lost all their influence, there can be no apprehension. They rest whatever is preached, as they do also the scriptures themselves, unto their own destruction. And would any man, in compliment to such persons, hold forth a restrained mutilated, half-preached the gospel? For my part, I am not afraid to imitate him in whose service I minister by preaching a full, free, and finished salvation through the sole merits, death, and righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And while I trace the footsteps of mercy in his history when upon earth, in going about the streets of Jerusalem, constantly inviting sinners to come to him for life and salvation, while I see him now with the eye of faith on his throne of glory, calling unto such persons in all the ends of the earth to look unto him and be saved, while every ordinance of worship is uniformly directed to follow up the Savior's declaration of mercy that if any man thirst and come to him, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And while the Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. I am not afraid to echo these glorious proclamations of grace, nor fear I, to exceed my commission in declaring that he can and will save to the uttermost them that come to God by him, and that all that do come he will in no wise cast out. Nay, in the market days of his church, were I to perceive a case of 
more than ordinary wretchedness in some poor self-loathing sinner who, like the publican Christ describes, dared not so much as lift up his eyes unto heaven. I should particularly direct my message to him and say, To you is the word of this salvation sent. For the only difference known in the church of the Lord Jesus is that which arises from a penitential sense of wretchedness and faith in divine mercy. And where these qualities have the precedence, the most famished and the most hungry after the person and righteousness of the Redeemer are first to be supplied. But while I feel a growing confidence in thus publishing salvation according to the directions of the Savior, forgive me if I add, I cannot but be awfully concerned for those who restrain the truths of redemption and preach gospel mercies as if they were the sale and not the free gift of God. My poor brother, for whom I write, whose heart the Lord has touched with a sense of sin and a desire of salvation, and whose self-condemnation every action subscribes to, hear the call of grace. And while the heavenly voice sweetly sounds. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, 
that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.